Welcome to Living Off Course. Join us if you're fascinated by people who break free of societal norms to live life on their own terms. I'm Zita Moran, and with my co-host, Janie Lim, we're exploring what it takes to live a life that's authentically yours. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Living Off Course. On today's show, I'm really excited to introduce the second most famous, but my most favorite, Luke Walker in the world. Luke Walker is a good friend, personal mentor, and just one of the most fascinating, wonderful people I know. Luke has lived one of the most interesting entrepreneurial journeys I've ever heard. Find out how Luke went from studying astrophysics in university to becoming a hypnotherapist, to working on a burger van, to moving to Thailand and pursuing the digital nomad life. Luke is a master at pivoting and adaptability. I've really learned a lot from his positive mindset. Today, Luke is a partner in a rapidly growing, deeply fulfilling online health and fitness business in Thailand. It was an absolute delight recording this episode. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So we're delighted to have you on the podcast, Luke. And let's just get this out of the way. Do you get teased for your name? Luke Walker? Not really teased. I get people making comments like I used to and I played I played a lot of soccer when I was a kid. And um, you know, there's always one parent who's really loud. Yeah. So they're like my mate Ash, my mate Ashley, his dad was like really, really loud. And whenever I got the ball, he would scream from the touchlines, use the force, Luke, use the force. Like, and you know, first game, it's funny. Second game, it's a little funny. After about five years of playing that team, they're like, come on, Derek, you can think of something else. Change it up. They loved it. So as long as he was happy, it was fine by me. Oh, Did your parents, like, were they big Star Wars fans or they had no idea? No, no, not really. I think it came out in 77, Star Wars. So it was big. Like, it was a huge hit by the time I was born in 82. But maybe they just thought it would blow over and it wouldn't become the greatest franchise of all time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> releasing them again and again. But no, I never really teased about it. Well, it's yeah. a pretty good um, association. Like Luke. Yeah, it could be worse. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. So. Oh, definitely. So let's explore the hero and this hero's journey. Okay, let's uh, start with what you're doing nowadays. Okay, so I live in Thailand, northern Thailand, Chiang Mai, and I work with a Thai fitness influencer. And we have a small company, there's 10 of us. And uh, yeah, we provide people with online programs, coaching, and health supplements. Fascinating. So, do, do you speak Thai? No, I've been I've been here like three years. I'm like one of those awful people that's getting really embarrassed to say how long they've been in that country. But I'm trying to learn. I've been doing lessons for a while, but it's oh, I just I'm not very good at it. Really I bet bad. you speak more than you actually gave yourself credit for. Like, I don't well, think Jamie I don't. doesn't speak any at all. I'm at, seven, I'm at seven years and I speak five words badly. That makes me feel a lot better about myself. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but if ever I feel bad, I'm going to compare myself to you. I'm starting to be able to understand a little bit more. So I'm starting to pick up the words when I'm hearing it, but speaking is still horrendous. It's still really bad. Like 50% of the time when I order a bottle of water up, they bring me a coconut. So I haven't even mastered how to say bottle of water in Thai yet without it sounding like a coconut. So that's <laughs> that's hilarious. For me, um, when I call people beautiful, uh, I either get a big smile or a dirty look because it's beautiful or yeah. bad luck. 
Oh. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you're going like that to them. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. It's the beautiful one. <laughs> yeah, the other one. I'm in yeah. the other one. <laughs> Stop crying. Right. It's fine. That's crazy, Luke. Like, how do you go from, okay, let's uh, retrace the steps then. You were born in the UK. Yeah. And you studied astrophysics in university? Yeah. Okay, so tell us more about that. Let's, let's go from there and how you got to Chiang Mai from there. Good question. How long is this podcast? <laughs> okay, just some highlights. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because looking back, it's really easy to connect the dots, right? You're like, okay, yeah, that led to that and that led to that and it all kind of makes sense. But going the other way, which was the actual experience of life, I had no idea what was going on. And yeah, I just... I liked science. I found it really interesting. I liked it at school. I was decent at it. So I kind of, I enjoyed it. Yeah. When I was choosing courses for university, I chose like six completely different courses. That's how you do it in the UK, or at least you did then. You chose kind of six universities that you might want to go to and you put them in order of where you'd like to go most. And so, yeah, I had a completely broad range of different courses, but that was the one I wanted to do most. That was the one I was most interested in. And I'm glad I did. I, I mean, I don't remember much about it now, but I remember it being fascinating and I still read kind of popular science books and stuff even now so yeah it was good I loved it and after studying at uni did you have any ideas of going into astrophysics no um, I really liked science but I liked it at kind of a surface level where it's still quite interesting and I like to see how everything's sort of connected together which is why I guess like astrophysics was good because it was about you know really big things and understanding kind of the bigger picture of stuff but to be a scientist you really have to specialize and get into real detail on a particular subject and that's not really my style I prefer to be kind of a bit of a jack of all trades really so yeah I knew I wasn't going to do it and then I was really lost for a long time and just not knowing what to do the kind of careers that were not expected but the ones that were more obvious to do after that were things like going into finance going into IT and that kind of stuff and that just didn't appeal to me at the time so yeah I just kind of did all kinds kinds of different things for years and years and years and then eventually started working for myself and, and really liked that and then went from there and then ended up in Thailand a long time after that. Oh well working for yourself doing what? The first time I worked for myself I was a hypnotherapist. Oh my god. Yeah that was the first thing I did. Yeah. So many different so, things Luke I love it. So what yeah, was your hypnotherapy? What was it? So again, it was a point in my life where I was a bit lost in terms of a career. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but whatever I was doing at the time, I wasn't particularly happy doing that. So I was looking for something else to do. And I, I remember getting this book called Phantoms in the Brain by this guy. I'm going to mess up his surname, but it's like Ramash, Ramachandran or something like that. It's like a, an Indian professor. He actually became like really famous after I read the book because he did a TED talk about mirror neurons, which became really, really popular. He's like this brilliant guy. And he wrote this, yeah, this book called Phantoms in the Brain. And the book was just a series of case studies of people who had either brain injuries or they'd had strokes which had affected certain parts of their brain or they were just genetically had certain problems with their brain. And it was about their experience of life and how it was very different. And he had this whole section in there about phantom limb syndrome. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, yeah so, so when you know, people have had amputees can still mm -hmm. feel their amputated limb. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And what often happens is... They won't just feel the limb that's gone. They'll feel it in a kind of aggravated or a painful way. So, for example, it might feel like their fist is clenched the whole time and they can't relax it. And that causes them a lot of stress and problems. So he had this whole thing explaining how phantom limb syndrome works. And one of the things that they were trying was 
hypnosis. And when people were under hypnosis, they could kind of reassociate with that limb and relax it. So say they had that pain, they could kind of relax it and they could get some relief from it. And I was like, oh, wow, because I only knew about hypnosis as in, you know, drunk on holiday and they're getting people up and they're making them do crazy things and everybody's laughing, right? That's what I knew of hypnosis. And then Mm -hmm. I heard out about that and I was like oh wow so you could use hypnosis for like therapy and like helping people with stuff so I kind of went down that rabbit hole and then found out that you could just go and do a course and learn how to do it and then set yourself up and and go for it so I did that in London for about three years and so you were there in London as a hypnotherapist so you did that for three years and what made you kind of stop hypnotherapy did you enjoy doing it I enjoyed it for a bit, yeah. I mean, I wasn't doing anything as good as like phantom limb syndrome stuff. It does nothing to that level. I was helping people stop smoking. I was helping people lose weight because you've got to pay the bills, right? So by far the majority of clients were wanting to stop smoking. That was uh, the, the kind of the way that you would earn your living. And it I was really repetitive. Oh, yeah. Oh, I for when I wanted to stop smoking. I How smoked- was it? Yeah, it was good for a little bit. And then it was eventually Alan Carr that helped me stop smoking. Oh, right. I yeah. digress on my little anecdote. Yeah, but I mean, people, people swear by Alan Carr's book. Like that book has helped so many people. It's um, amazing. But the yeah. hypnotherapy was really great. I didn't keep up with the, the tapes whatever I don't think they gave me tapes but but yeah sorry I digress down my own little path but I can imagine did you find that you had a lot of success stories yes but there's a big caveat to it what I found out was and I don't you know I don't want to knock it because I think it does a lot of good for a lot of people it's one of those things where a lot of people in that industry they are scientists that have figured everything out and they have all the answers and they can help anybody with anything what they don't admit to themselves is that actually it's much more of a kind of art form than a science nobody really understands how it works and you can't help everybody every time even if they say that you can right so what i've figured out is that you could have a really high success rate but you'd have to be very very selective about who you even took as a client People wouldn't realize it, but as soon as they were phoning up to book an appointment, we were vetting them, really. As an example, some kind of obvious ones that I didn't know at the beginning were if a husband phones up on behalf of their wife or vice versa, saying, I want to book them an appointment, it just won't work. Like, it's just not going to work. And I learned that after a little while. And I was like, okay, so never do that again. And then also I found out that if somebody couldn't articulate why they wanted to stop, and they didn't have a really decent reason, I knew it would be really hard. Because Mm. what you would be doing in the sessions is you'd be getting people into a very suggestive state, but you'd need that deep motivation, whatever that really important reason was to them. You'd need to kind of use that. You need to kind of anchor everything around that. So if they didn't have that, you couldn't just construct it for them. And then it would be really difficult. So yeah, it worked well, but that was the caveat. It was like, you, you know, you couldn't just get a load of smokers off the street and say, right, I'm going to hypnotize all of you. And it worked. I, I don't even know what the success rates of that would be. Much, much lower. That's so interesting. It shows that you need to, with any endeavor, it starts with you. You need to decide you're going in that direction. Yeah, I, yeah, I always felt it was kind of like people who were ready to make that decision to stop themselves but almost needed a 
belief structure in their own mind. And you, the external person, they would see you as this authority, this therapist, hypnotist person, and you would be able to help them construct that for themselves. And even if they think you've done it for them, actually, they did it for themselves. They just needed a little bit of help. It was much more of an art form. It was, I mean, the interesting things were when people came in with really extreme personalities, and then you'd have to try and hypnotize people that that like couldn't relax or because normally you just do progressive relaxation you just help people relax sometimes you get someone who cannot relax right so you'd have to to do the opposite you'd have to exhaust their mind until they got to the point where they would say okay right i'm ready that's that's enough you'd have to match the technique to the personality coming in so i found that really interesting but then the actual kind of going through you know i would say the same thing so many times i would dream about it and I started to hear it in my dreams. I was like, okay, maybe it's time for a new career. <laughs> maybe it's time to move on. So you're kind of craving more variety. Yeah, and it was a very antisocial job as well because I would rent this room in this building in North London where there would be acupuncturists, child psychologists, all different people who would come in and rent rooms when they need them. But you didn't really see people because you'd all kind of come in at different times. So there wasn't any like colleagues And then you cannot have any kind of relationship with your clients. Like that's a strict no-no. You know, they need to see you as just whatever they need to see you as, not as who you really are, right? So it was quite, yeah, it's a bit of a lonely job because I would just, you know, I would walk down the road, I'd go to this room, I'd, you know, interact with these people. But the whole point is that they don't come back. That's when you're doing a good job, right? So you know you're not going to see them again. And then you didn't have any colleagues. So it's kind of a bit, yeah, a few years was enough. I can see that. So but, but was it um, successful? In what way? In, in what way? Like uh, from the intention to the fulfillment, like you uh, went down this path and you built this business and then you proved to yourself that you could build a business. It wasn't financially successful. <laughs> well, no, it, was a, it was a real slog. It was difficult. Yeah, it was really difficult because it would come in such waves. So, you know, like January would come around with New Year's resolutions and I would think I was rich, right? Because you'd get so many people and then there'd be other parts of the year where it's like, oh, the phone's not ringing, you know. And I was trying to figure out at the time, like Google AdWords, I was trying to figure out Google AdWords at the time. And that was sometimes working, sometimes not. So, yeah, financially, it wasn't a success at all. But in terms of doing something that I found interesting for a while, it was a success on that front. I'll cling on to that. Okay. That's great. It does sound like it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay. And then from there... How do you go to get into digital marketing? I guess maybe the AdWords were an on-ramp? Not really. From there, I, had, I was playing, at the time I was doing that, I was playing football. I'd been playing football in a, for a team in London for a long time. So I knew all these guys. With the hypnotherapy, when I was starting to get to the point where I was like, no, I'm not making enough money. This is a real slog. I'm not enjoying it like I used to. One of my mates from football was like, well, do you want some extra work? And I was like, yeah, actually I do. And he said, well, I I own all these burger vans. And I was like, okay. And he's like, do you want to come and just work on the burger van? It would be a laugh. Like we just, we go there at five o'clock in the morning, we get up and we go there. It's on a construction site. We make burgers and stuff. Why don't you come and do that? I was like, all right, let's do that for a (laughs) bit. It was a crazy job. I mean, King's Cross is a lot nicer now. But then, you know, I was getting up so early in the morning when I would walk to the burger van there would still be all the prostitutes out on the street. And so they'd be there, like, free, it'd be freezing cold. They'd be there, and I'd be like, morning. <laughs> it was just really odd, like, walking to work, seeing the kind of, like, oh, I hope you had a good night. You know, it was kind of... So was, friendly. Oh, yeah, it was <laughs> strange. 
you know, this is how kind of like when you look back, it all kind of makes sense, right? But working on that guy's burger van, like he was a, an amazing entrepreneur, still is an amazing entrepreneur. And like the burger vans were just one thing that he did. You know, he used to run the Saturday nights of the Ministry of Sound for a long time. And the reason he had burger vans was he managed to talk them into letting him put a burger van in Ministry of Sound, which obviously had thousands of people going through there. So this was something that made him a lot of money. And he was like, but that's who, you know, very, very good at spotting opportunities like that. So we ended up just enjoying working together. And um, that led to this other random thing, right? So I'm doing the burger vans with him. And then he was like, Luke, I've done something crazy. I was in this guy's house in Tenerife. I was in his back garden. And I saw that he had this psychedelic bus, like a double-decker bus. And um, he said it looked really cool. I was asking the guy whose house it was. And he said it was Paul McCartney's 1970-something Wings tour bus. And he bought it because he was going to put it outside a restaurant. So never did anything with it. It's dilapidated in the back of the garden. So this guy, the, the entrepreneur that I was working with, he just bought it on the spot. And then he said to me, he was like, Lou, we need to do something with this bus. What should we do? And he had this idea about renovating it, bringing it back to London and doing like music tours around like all the kind of famous music landmarks of London on this bus. I was like, that's an amazing idea. Let's, let's do it. Like, we should do that. It'd be great fun. I then started going into his office. So I got myself out of the burger van. So that was a start. Um, <laughs> up the ladder. So I, I was uh, going into his office and I was just working on this bus project. And it turns out that trying to get like a tour going in London is really, really complicated. You have to like submit for all these applications. You have to employ a traffic manager. You have to show how your bus routes will affect existing traffic in all these different. It was like, it was, (laughs) yeah. And we figured it all out and, and we got to the point where it could happen, but then what we realized was that the bus literally, the axles and everything were gone, and you couldn't even tow it properly. And because of the height and where it was in Tenerife, we would have to, we would have had to hire a crane to lift the bus over several bridges to try and get it to the point where we could get it on a ferry or something. And it would have cost, I think it was something like £100,000 or something, just to get it back. Okay, yeah, that's, this is insane. Um, <laughs> So, so, but again, like we really enjoyed working together on it. It was good. And, and then from that, another friend had just been back. He'd got back from LA and he'd seen people streaming yoga classes live. And you've got to remember, this is 2011, right? So most people didn't have broadband then. Netflix, I don't think they were sending out DVDs in the post back then, right? So there was no streaming, let alone live streaming stuff. But he'd seen this, this company doing it in LA and he told me and this guy, Justin, the guy who owned the bus and everything, he told us about it. And then we started working on that. And that turned into a company called Instructor Live, which is still going today, which streams like hundreds of different workouts online and people pay a subscription and then they can access all this stuff. So that turned into that. And that was kind of the first, I'd say, like real business that tried to build. So Justin and I worked on that for years. Wow, I can tell this is all news to Janie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it's news to me as well, because but little bits of it are starting to fall into place because I know Emma and Irene and they speak very highly of you and your entrepreneurial talent. I didn't realize how crazy your journey had been. I know there's other 
great stories from this point. If we could bring it back to you working with Justin on this Instructor Live. And then from there, where from there, Luke? So that then led into, and again, seems like it makes sense looking back. But so when I first came out to Thailand, I was still working on Instructor Live. And I was working on Instructor Live even until last year. So, but when I first came out here, this was about two and a half years ago or something like that. And I was in a cafe and I was just working. And then this incredibly beautiful girl walks past. And I was like, wow, you know, she's amazing. And then she came in and she sits down next to me and she started editing a fitness video with her in it. She was the instructor in the video, right? So I started a conversation with her and we got talking and she's Thai, right? So she'd built this big audience. She was making good money selling programs, but she really wanted to like grow her business because she was doing it all herself. She was literally doing everything on her own. So we ended up we like met a couple more times and then just decided, right, I will give it like a few months to see like, could I help her with the marketing and the kind of growing the business, and putting some systems in place and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then we still work together now. And like that's main focus now is working with her. And it's just pure coincidence, really, really lucky to meet someone at exactly the right time. Her skills and my skills really complemented well and where she was at with her business and where I was at just ended up really good timing. I love that. Also, she has a quite a beautiful, inspiring story, right, Luke? Yeah, she does. It's funny that we're having this podcast this week, actually, because I might have mentioned to you when I emailed you, that I was like, that there's certain things that I can't talk about because she doesn't feel comfortable talking about them. This week, she posted a Facebook post with her story. For people like us, maybe, or certainly for people like me, I look at her story and I'm like, wow, you should tell everybody. It's incredible. You're an amazing person. You should just inspire other people with that. But for her, I don't know what the emotion was, whether it's worried about how people might react to her background or whatever. I don't know. But she was very shy about it for a really long time. And then this week, she posted this story because she's got a huge following on Facebook, right? She's got a massive following. She posted this story, which was a series of images, like going right back to basically when she was dropped off at an orphanage when she was eight years old and just left there, right? Going all the way through like the time in the orphanage to eventually she got fostered and got a place at Chiang Mai University. And then she went to America for the first time with her foster parents because they're American right up to today where she's doing events in Bangkok and there's like hundreds of her customers there. And it was really amazing because that obviously took a lot of courage for her to do that because she didn't know how people would react. And it got something like four and a half thousand people liked the post and like the comments were just amazing. People were just like, you've inspired me. I never knew this about you. This is incredible. You know, blah, 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 blah. And I think it was like a huge moment for her to get that kind of like, no, it's okay. You know, you can say where you're from and people are going to be, they're going to have the opposite reaction to what you think. They're going to be even more impressed. They're actually going to get closer to you, not want to be further away. It was great. It was really, really good to see that. And um, she's amazing. So I'm really happy for her that that happened. Incredible. And what timing. So you could share that with us. Yeah, that's amazing. I'll send send you the link afterwards so you can read it. It's really amazing. It's in English. No, you'll have to read the kind of dodgy Facebook translations. Okay, okay. (laughs) But you can can get the gist. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the, the Facebook translations are pretty bad, but you can see, even if you just look at the photos, you can see the journey. It's really amazing. So yeah, now like we've got seven full-time staff now and two of them also grew up in the same orphanage with her. So they're like, there's three, yeah. And one of them, this girl on, her name's on, 
she's in her early 20s she's really young and when she started working with us I'm not joking she had never turned on a computer before she hadn't ever done that so she's had to learn everything and now she manages like a team of admins she like does all stuff online she's like helping to do coaching and it's amazing it's it's genuinely amazing because you're like wow you know you guys are for one they're completely fearless right they just go for it and two like to see how much they've progressed in terms of like the skills they've built up and and for Dow it's it Dow is my business partner for her it's great because she gets to help out who are essentially her sisters that she grew up with help them get jobs and skills and this kind of stuff it's a real pleasure to work with them all wow so that's your full-time thing now yeah I know Janie wants the same thing She's like bursting. Um, no, but I just <laughs> say, um, reflecting on the journey that you've told us, what really strikes me is that you, it sounds like you tend to just pick up on opportunities as they present themselves to you. Because I know personally, in the moment, it doesn't always seem as obvious to me. And there's a lot of kind of limiting beliefs or fears sometimes about changing direction or doing different things. What is your experience of you kind of changing careers, I suppose, as you have? Have you experienced resistance or fears about the unknown? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And certainly when I was younger, it was, yeah, really bad. But I think something that's helped me as I've got older is, you know, how you just get to to know yourself better and you know kind of what you want what you don't want something that that I've realized is for me just personally for me is it's important what I'm doing it needs to be interesting and challenging and creative and those kind of things but it's just as important like who I'm doing it with mm-hmm. so for example you know working on the burger vans are some of my happiest memories because I was working with a great guy and we had loads of fun that time was quite an eye-opener for me because I'd just come from doing the hypnotherapy and before that, you know, I was working more corporate jobs. And like on paper, that should all have been better, right? But working on the burger van with someone who's great fun, I really enjoyed it. So I was like, oh, okay, so maybe it doesn't matter exactly what you're doing so much because I would put a lot of pressure on like, you should be doing this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, I love what I do. You know, I I love the kind of creative side and I love kind of trying to grow a team and this kind of stuff. It's almost doesn't matter that much. I could probably be doing anything. I just like the group of people that I'm doing it with. And that's kind of more important for me these days. And so I think, yeah, it's not necessarily seeing opportunities. It's more just finding people that I, I really like to be around and then trying to figure out can we be around each other professionally in a way that pays the bills. So that's kind of how I've ended up sort of moving between things like that. That's really interesting. Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my questions. Like what strikes me the most is that there was really nothing beneath you, like working on a burger van. I can't even imagine that. So I want to know like what kept you committed and interested in doing that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I, I know exactly what you mean. And like, there are definitely times when I would think, oh my God, you know, like what, do, what would people think? I've got like a good degree and... I had good corporate jobs and now I'm working in a burger van in my, I don't know what it was, probably late 20s almost. So there was definitely that thought that would come in and you'd be like, oh, but then you're just like, "Ah, yeah, but I'm enjoying it. And like, so what's the problem? Like, why does it matter? You know, so I definitely have those thoughts a lot. I don't have them anymore. Like I just kind of, I just don't have that anymore. I think it's an age thing. I just don't have the comparison to other people um, like I used to have. And it's, it's liberating. <laughs> so I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, to comment on that again, is that what struck me with the burger van is you not listening to your ego. Yeah, I was thinking, great degree, 
you were saying you worked for corporate before that, then you work for yourself and then work in a burger band. But conversely, or perhaps paradoxically, you know, it was that burger van job that got you where you are now. I mean, everything mm-hmm. got you where you are now, I suppose. But it was you establishing that relationship with that entrepreneur skyrocketed you into where you are now. And I'm just, I guess this is a narrative fallacy where you always look for patterns or whatever. And you're like, this has led to this, but it seems like not listening to your ego and actually listening to your spirit or your whatever it was that just said, actually, I just really enjoy it. Your heart that said, I really enjoy it, that actually gave you some of the biggest opportunities that you had up until then. Or or so it sounds like to me. Yeah, that's true. And but what I'm conveniently forgetting, right, is that there between that burger van and now, I mean, there was loads of periods where I was unhappy and frustrated and but kind of, I remember, you know, it's kind of, I remember that really fondly now. Like I remember that time and I do think it really helped because I did have to kind of get to a point where I'm like, well, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks, you know, you're starting again. It's okay. Like that, what you were doing wasn't right. Just do something else. Do it with somebody that you enjoy working with and then just see what happens. And yeah. And then like, it's like Instructor Live, the first years of that were really difficult really hard because we didn't know what we were doing really I mean the guy I was working with Justin's great entrepreneur but he'd never built an online business before so he couldn't really guide me on well what should we be doing he was just there to support you know he was just like well let's just do it you know which was great but the actual kind of well what should we actually do (laughs) neither of us had a clue so like that was really tough And, and obviously living in London it's expensive and we weren't making much money you know so that was it that was a grind at times but I still enjoyed it because it was like, but I'm still working for myself and I've got this great business partner and we're going to do these great things. And there was always the excitement of what might be, you know. So I think that's what I liked much more than being in a job where the what might be is like, well, you might become that boss. But really, you didn't really want to be that anyway. So yeah. kind of like what the options were of what might be that weren't particularly appealing. What I've noticed is that uh, you have this uh, ability to control your self-talk within that time. You were saying that you would uh, kind of frame it for yourself in the most positive way to like get through some of the challenges. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I would try to. Yeah, I would try to. Yeah. Not always successfully, but yeah, I would try and frame it in a positive way. And would that be an actual deliberate practice or was that just a part of your, your nature? No, that's deliberate. Definitely in my early 20s, mid 20s, I would um, have periods of feeling really down. Like I wouldn't say kind of to the point of like depression, but like I would be down and I would feel kind of like, so I did have to get better at figuring out, you know, you're not your thoughts. You can, you can decide how you react to how you feel, you know, those kinds of things, which are easy to say, right? But they're really hard to actually do it, you know, so that took a long time. So how did you learn that though? Like, I don't like, we say that that's like Oh, I was going to ask what kind of tools. Yeah. Yeah, what kind of tool? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've always read a lot. So I would read about the mind and I would read self-help books. I've been always read self-help books, you know, like so, but loads of them. And um, yeah, and just kind of picking bits and pieces and then trying them out. And just, I've tried, I don't know how 
many years I've been trying to meditate and in all that time I've probably had about four seconds in total of actually not thinking about what I'm doing that day but I think more than anything it's just being aware that these tools do exist even if I'm not very good at using them just just knowing that oh people write about this stuff people do podcasts about this stuff there's a whole group of people that discuss how to change the way you think like I remember the Carol Dweck book which I didn't actually finish but you can kind of get the whole thing from just reading the summary of it right it's like when you realize that there's different types of mindset, you're like, oh, wow, that is such a liberating thing to find out that like a very serious academic has figured out that there's this thing called a fixed mindset. And then as soon as you're aware of that, you've got a name for it. You can notice when you're in it. And then you say, oh, I mean, I'm doing the fixed mindset thing. And then you can try and figure out how to get out of it. So those kind of like really, um, I'd say like a lot of the best ideas seem really simple, right? So when you read that book, you're like, yeah, of course. But then I'd never thought it before. So it, it seems obvious afterwards, right? But actually, it's so simple, but it's so powerful. And I just think, yeah, like picking up little bits of pieces of knowledge and things that you can practice and be aware of and notice when you're in that kind of state or this kind of state has really, really helped. I'm remembering, and I don't know if I am correct, but Luke, but have you done ayahuasca? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh I think it's remembered because I know that you were the one who encouraged Emma to do it. So that's what was kind of the penny yeah. was dropping for me. But um, could you talk yeah. a little bit about ayahuasca? And Yeah, that? sure. So I can't remember how old I was. It's not that long ago. I don't know when it was. Five years ago, six years ago, something like that. Uh, maybe a little bit more. My problem was that I found it really difficult to open up to people emotionally and to be intimate with people like that was really difficult I was getting to the point where I was like well this is a problem you're getting to an age now where you should have been able to have better relationships than you've had you know you can't say oh it's her fault and it's her fault for that it's not it's your fault you're, you're the common theme here <laughs> you know so it's like so again like yeah I guess that's a tool right so I ended up going down a rabbit hole like people do with YouTube videos and think never heard of this thing before but then seeing all the different like people going there for addictions and stuff like that to work through and they're like oh it's like therapy and you get very introspective and I was like well maybe this will help me open up a little bit and turns out it's perfect for that <laughs> because it's not like you can choose and be like, I think I'm going to try being vulnerable. Like you can't. It just like you end up being vulnerable. That's what it does, you know. So I was there, like it was three nights of it and it was insane. But it really, really helped because there was a, uh, there was a period in that three nights where I did feel very vulnerable and I did kind of, you let a lot of emotion out. And then gradually after, it wasn't like overnight, but after that, I did find it easier to connect with people. I did find it easier to guess just open up and not try and bottle things up and and then yeah and then the next relationship I had after that was much better than any that I'd had before then they got better you know so I was like oh okay yeah it's you can do that you know you can be open you can like and I guess that's a that's a fear right it comes from a fear of being hurt or rejected I, I don't know what the deep fear is but there's something deep in that which makes you closed off to people so I'm really glad I did it it was quite a tough experience, but... Oh, my God. Really so can you, like, you can't yada, yada, yada over the best part. Like, what happened during those three nights? So the, sum, the, short, the short summary is the first night was, like, recreational, right? The first night was fun. I was tripping. I was seeing all this crazy shit, and it was really good fun. It was like I'd done it on a night out with some friends to kind of... So that was fine. And then, so the next night this is easy so then the next night was completely the opposite 
and I really freaked out like really badly and I was hallucinating the room full of smoke and I thought I was choking on the smoke and it was it was horrible and um, I ended up crying my eyes out and they have these the place that I went to they're amazing they had these helpers there who are just people who are kind of not taking the ayahuasca and just know how to handle people that are going up and down through the roller coaster. Yeah, this one lady called Fifi, her name was, which sounds very ayahuasca, I think. She was this lovely woman and she just sat down next to me and just held my hand and just talked me through it because I really felt like I was losing grip on reality and it was terrifying. I was like, this is what insanity must feel like. It was really scary. And so she just held, held on to me and... Um, yeah, came through that. And then the third night was just very chilled. And like, it was really nice. And I was having great conversations with this really broad group of people that I, I didn't know. There was one guy I knew sort of through work. He was a personal trainer in London. So I kind of knew him a bit. And that's how we ended up going there. Yeah, it was amazing. And then came back and like, as people do, just bored everybody telling them all about it over and over again. <laughs> Scared my parents. They're like, what's happened to him? No, I did all the cliched things. For weeks afterwards, I would get up early every morning. I would go out walking on Hampstead Heath barefoot. Oh, you I know, love that. Just That's like, awesome. you know, turn me into a hippie, like complete hippie. And it lasted for weeks, that feeling after. I felt amazing afterwards. And I still feel like it was a great experience. Like it really helped me. But then I have said, like, I recommend, well, I don't anymore. I used to recommend it to friends, but then I stopped because it, too many of them had bad experiences. And I was like, you got to stop recommending that because not everybody's going to have the experience that you had. Mm. So they need to make that decision themselves. And so I just stopped. Mm -hmm. Well, you should do it because really I should not have been saying that because some people have gone there and it's, you know, so it's, it's powerful stuff. Yeah. But you would say that it, it was uh, transformative. And in that specific way, a lot of people talk about why it works and how it works, and they have all these different names for it, and they, they'll talk about the plant medicine and the madre, and I don't know about that stuff, right? But I definitely went there with a specific intention, and it was like getting therapy to work through that specific intention. So maybe everybody has that. So everybody's intentions are different, and therefore they have a different experience because of that intention. I don't know, but for me, it was really good. It was really, really good. So yeah, glad I did it. Would you do it again? I would. Yeah, I don't think I would do it again now. I'm sure there might be a certain point in my life where there might be a different intention and there might be something else that I want to go and explore and, or, excuse me, work through. And then, yeah, for that, I think, like you're talking about tools, Zita, I think that's a powerful tool and I'm not 100% sure how it works or whether you can even control it. It's amazing what your brain can do. It's amazing. Well, would you say, could you see a common theme with the people that you recommended it to and had bad experiences? Or was it just random? Yeah, no, I think more random. I think the one friend who had a really bad experience. So a lot of the time people people find out that I did it. They're like, oh, wow. So you went to like South America. You went to the jungle. I'm like, no, I went to Norwich. Like <laughs> I went to this place in like, you know, the countryside in England, right? I had to meet a guy under the clock. I had to meet the shaman under the clock at the train station. And he was... Very English. So it was not an exotic experience at all. So the one friend who had a really bad experience, so she, instead of going to the same place that I went to, she dived straight in at the deep end. She got on a plane. She went to Peru. She did it with complete strangers where the shaman didn't speak any English. And she did it for 10 days in the jungle. Oh and like God. those helpers, the one holding our hands and stuff, we needed those people. And I needed to hear her voice telling me it's going to be okay. And I needed to understand that. 
But if you're there going through something like that and you're in a jungle, you don't know anybody and it isn't helpers and you can't understand the shaman, that's really intense. That's like 10 levels more intense. So I think she just maybe, I don't know, she just went for it and maybe it was just too much too soon. And other friends, it's not like they had a terrible experience. It's just that it opened up wounds that then they have to deal with. And it's like, you know, maybe they're ready to deal with it. Maybe it's a good thing in the long run and they'll look back. But in the short term, that's not pleasant, you know, especially if you're not expecting those wounds to open up quite like that. So that's why, you know, certain friends have have gone back many times because they are working for it. They're not just trying to look like just like me, just found it difficult to cry. Right. That was my problem. But they're people that have got really serious problems, like actual real problems. And, And for them. Yeah, I don't think it's a, you know, you just go once and everything's fine. I think it's like a, it's, it's a whole process that could take years. So hopefully, eventually, they'll be like, yeah, thanks for recommending it. But in the short term, maybe not so much. <laughs> oh, gosh, I can imagine. Glad. I had no idea that you had done ayahuasca. I'm so glad that you shared that story. I am have, so have excited. You both, have you both done it? Oh, you haven't, Janie. I haven't either. I was literally oh, on the Oh, okay. Yeah. But Janie, yeah, Janie was about to hop on a plane to Brazil right where, just before lockdown kind of happened. Oh, um, wow. To ayahuasca. So she was very much prepared for it. So it was a bit of a disappointment. Yes. Uh, um, I also want to ask, like, um, I, have you done other psychedelics? Mushrooms, but only, like, recreationally. So, okay. like, festivals and stuff like that. I've never done anything before where I was going and taking a psychedelic drug for more of a kind of introspective experience, exploration type thing. I've never, that's the first time and only time I've ever done that. Okay. Are you interested in pursuing that in the future? I'm just curious. I wouldn't say I was interested in pursuing it, but like if, if the opportunity came around and it was like, this is a great group of people and we're doing it for this reason, or yeah, it's like a really nice group and you're going out in nature and you're going to have some magic mushrooms, then I'm not opposed to that by any means but it's not something I'm like thinking yes I want to go and do that again okay okay I know we're coming on time but there's so many things I want to ask you and I know Zita wanted to know if you know your MBTI your Myers-Briggs no no yeah Janie thought you wouldn't yeah I'm like I know I've asked Luke because I'm obsessed with it too and I just can't like I can't guess I think Janie I think you were the one to you that said to me, you said, oh, you're this. And I went back and looked it up and it was exactly right. <laughs> but I can't yeah, remember what it was. Someone that. said that to me, oh, yeah, you're like this. And I was like, oh, what's that mean? And, then, and I was like, oh, yeah, nailed it. That's exactly, exactly it. I haven't really done, done anything like that and, and remembered it. Okay, let's see. Are there any points that we really want to cover before? Okay, so one thing, yeah, is a question that we've been asking people is, what would you like to be remembered for, Luke? Oh, my answer's so cheesy. Good father, good husband, good friend. That's it. I love that. <laughs> that is not cheesy at all, Luke. That's we not mean, cheesy. It's really cheesy. It's very it's really cheesy. But it's, it's true, but it's cheesy. Amazing. And also, okay, are there any books that have greatly impacted or changed your life? Yes. I don't know if it like, changed my life. I think that, yeah, certain books that you read at certain times and they resonate. So like I remember some like pretty geeky books that I read growing up, which I absolutely loved and just blew my brain open. And I loved that feeling of like, wow, you know, I didn't even know people could think like that. You know, it was incredible. 
I've recommended some of those books to people before and they've hated them. <laughs> so it's just like, so like the ayahuasca, I've stopped recommending those books. Yeah, I don't know. It's, again, it's a, it's a cliche thing. And if you say it in the kind of digital online circles, people groan. But like I read the four hour work week when that came out. And based on that book, I moved to Brazil to become a portrait painter because of that book. Okay. So I did... Look, what on earth is that? <laughs> no, I didn't, sell, I didn't sell any paintings and I wasn't any good, but I did take action. Like I took action based on that book because he had this great chat. I don't know if you, have you guys read that, the Tim Ferriss book? Yeah. 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 It's a long time ago. And it was, I, I was probably 25 or something when I read that. And he had this chapter like, what's your dream life? Like, what would you be doing? Not what would you have, but what would you be doing? And I was like, oh, good question. I'd love to be like an artist living in Brazil. I'd never been to Brazil. But I always had this like fantasy about Brazil. And then he said in that chapter, he's like, well, now work out how much it would actually cost to live like that. And you'll probably be surprised that it's less than you think. And then I was like, oh, actually, it is a lot less than I think. Because at the time, Brazil was cheap. It's not now, but it was at the time it was cheap to live there. And so I saved up money, managed to talk a friend into coming with me. And we went and lived on Copacabana Beach. We had an apartment right on the beach, lived there for six months. I painted my portraits. <laughs> it was ridiculous, but I loved it. And then obviously didn't sell anything, had no talent, <laughs> ran out of money and came home. But it was great. Oh, where, okay. Where was this in your narrative? So was this pre-Burgervan or post? Ah, good question. I think it was pre-Burger Van. It was post-corporate life. It was kind of like the kind of backlash to the corporate world and before going into the hypnotherapy. I think it was in there. It was in that gap because I'd been traveling a bit when I was younger and I always wanted to go away and then read the Tim Ferriss book. And I still think that book stands up. Like even some of it's a bit dated now, but it, it was great. Like it was like lifestyle design and all that kind of thing. I'd never heard of any of that before. Had no idea it existed. Obviously, I had no idea at the time of how to actually make money online or do anything like that. So I was like, I'll just be a painter. And it didn't work out at all. But it was an amazing six months. Like, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. You know what? This story is perfect because I was telling Zita that if I could think of anyone that I uh, consider fearless, it would be you, Luke. Really? Wow. Well, and yes. that story illustrates it. Like, I think a lot of us, me included, would probably overthink that whole thing to death. And I'd be like, I'm such a terrible. It wouldn't even occur to me <laughs> to, to paint and be like, well, maybe I can sell these because of yeah. it, not because of anything other than fear. But I, had, but, but I had nothing to lose. Like, I wasn't, like, it's not like, you know, someone who loves their job and they're really well paid and then they're thinking, oh, God, I'm really, oh, it's a lot to, or they've got a family, they've got young children to support. I had none of that. So to me, it didn't feel scary because it's like well the worst that can happen is I run out of money and come home which is exactly what I did so it just it didn't feel scary at the time because I was, it just felt like it just felt exciting it felt like fun um, uh, that's exactly it Luke like you just painted a worst case scenario and it happened and you survived I think that's what it is right we fear fear itself true we did get mugged twice at knife point that was actually scary <laughs> in Brazil yeah, by the same guy. God, what? Was he unsuccessful the first time? Or yeah, like, oh, no, not you again. He was like our local mugger. Maybe yeah. he was successful the first time and he's like, ah, good target. No, those guys. These really guys, good. yeah, these wimps, they're going to give it up. No problem. Oh, my God. Wow. Oh, but you still love your time in Brazil? 
Still loved it. Yeah, it was sketchy. And like, apparently it's even worse now, but it was re- it was sketchy at that age where, you know, I just, I liked it. I liked it. It was edgy. Like it was really exciting. Like, have, you, have you guys ever been to Rio? Have you been there? Have you been to the street parties? I haven't been to the, I was in Rio, oh God, maybe 2008 years ago. Right. So, um, and only for a few days, I didn't party there. It's a city I remember being quite, um, not wanting to walk around there at nighttime. No. By yeah. myself kind of thing. But yeah, what was your experience of Rio apart from the sketchiness? Did you go to a lot of parties, street parties? Yeah, like my, my routine was, was like wake up late, we'd get up, we'd go for a run on the beach, come back, have like a fresh fruit smoothie back to the beach do magic tricks for girls this is how long ago this was and because we couldn't speak any Portuguese the only way we communicate was through magic tricks and then um, we would just go out partying at night and then occasionally I would try and paint something and that was it and it, and it was amazing yeah really like zero responsibilities just just really just enjoying ourselves and even though know, it was a bit sketchy it was it was great yeah I, I love Brazil I love the Brazilian people they're really, really great. And it's impossible not to have fun in Rio, I think. Like, if you don't have fun there, there's something, there's something yeah. wrong with you. Because <laughs> it's just they're fun-loving fun. people. And, yeah, and they're very open and everybody's... They have these things called botecas, which are like the equivalent of like the English pub. Like, so they're everywhere, but they're open to the street. So they're normally on the street corner. So it's like an open bar to the street. And then they're always playing football on the TV. And you can just walk along and then you just walk up to the bar. And, and like the locals would always chat to us, even if, you know, we couldn't speak good Portuguese. And yeah, it was great. Like people love the Brazilians and it's a great country. Obviously it's got its problems, but at some point I'd love to go back there just to visit maybe. But yeah, I really loved it. And maybe actually sell a painting. No, I've given up on that. that oh, I've given really? up on that dream. <laughs> do, you, do you think for yourself at all anymore? Uh, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes just to relax. Uh, it's quite nice to do. Oh, I have um, no idea that you are also an artist. I, I could, do you want to see one? Oh, yes. You'll have to tell me if I've put it in the right direction. I don't know if you can see. Oh my God, Luke, you are very talented. Oh my God, we have to... But I do do cheat. I don't like paint it out of imagination. I find like a good photo that I like and then I just paint from the photo. So I think that is cheating. I don't think so. At all. That's incredible, Luke. You're extremely gifted. I thought you were like drawing stick figures in my mind. I'm like... (laughs) Yeah, well, thank God Luke showed us actually one of his pictures then. Yeah. <laughs> That's great in Janie's mind. Oh, Luke, we will let you go because I know it's really late there. So, um, but unless Janie had any other questions, we are... I just want to say it's been such an honor to have you on our show. It's been fantastic. Oh, thank, thanks for inviting me. It's been fun. Thank you so much for listening to Living Off Course. For links to any resources, books, etc. that we mentioned in the show, please check out the show notes on our website, livingoffcourse.com. And to stay up to date with our latest episodes, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and other podcasting platforms. Thank you so much again, and we look forward to seeing you next week.